Welcome to Live from Plato's Cave. I am Mario Veen. This is episode 26, Dealing with Collapse with Chris Julien. I spoke about the idea of Socrates as an activist before, in episode 24 with Hannah Prince. Socrates challenged the authorities of his day. And in Plato's allegory of the cave, we can imagine how the returning soul must feel. His old buddies are still watching the shadows. He tries to shake them up, to make clear that the shadows on the wall are not the whole picture. But they are under the impression that they already have everything in the picture that matters. So they don't respond. So how do you deal with the message of scientists that we have to take radical action to avoid tipping points in our climate system and ecological system? While on the other hand, you see that the adults in the room, that they're responding with classical psychological mechanisms, such as denial, killing the messenger, and hoping for a miracle that makes all the problems go away. Our guide today through Plato's cave is Chris Julian. Chris has a deep interdisciplinary insight into the climate crisis. He mixes research and practice in the fields of public innovation, theory and culture, with a focus on ecology and epistemology. He is currently pursuing a PhD at Utrecht University that combines new materialisms and eco-thinking to constitute a field of ecological governance. He is also active in Extinction Rebellion and XR News Media and he works on urban ecology and artistic research projects with Waag Future Lab. Chris holds cum laude master's degrees in conflict studies and human rights and in cultural analysis. I talked to your Extinction Rebellion colleague Hannah Prince this afternoon. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, what, for me it was a difficult conversation just because I think that's also what climate activism does is it confronts you with a reality that you rather not think about. Um, yeah. So one thing I was thinking about on the way back is that there's a point if you start to learn about the climate, the state of our planet, you start to learn about the science a little bit, their emotion comes into play. So frustration, anger, uh, depression, everything like that. So I think there's like an emotional component that people have to go through when they learn about the science. And I was just wondering, do you see it that way as well? And and did you have something like that in your life? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's really cutting to the to the core of it, I think, when it comes to activism now and, and climate uh, change. Yeah, emotion is, is the core, um, both in terms of the challenge I think we face now with climate activism is how to get people to emotionally onboard all this information and, and find a place um, in their everyday life, which is, of course, also an emotional life to sort of maybe not hold on to all the data points and all the dynamics, which are far too complex, but just the existential sense of being in a planet, being on a planet that is uh changing really rapidly and dangerously that's a really big thing to realize when you didn't grow up with that sense so i think 
as a climate movement also we've uh, come to understand the importance of that element not only for ourselves I think it was always for me also really great to become part of a, of a group of people that um, that really allows the emotion in without immediately feeling like it's sort of cliche or a bit silly or kind of being a bit uh, nervous or laughy about talking about emotions it's not something we're used to doing outside of sort of the therapist's uh, room um, maybe so but but that that conversation that we were already having within sort of activist circles or within people that have already stepped into that space that in existential space of the world is in crisis that's now that's something that has to open up to the rest of the world um, and to do so without as Timothy Morton said recently when I spoke to him without this PTSD inducing you know um way of dealing with all the information because constantly repeating all these facts about climate change as you said induces all these emotions but it's also quite traumatic so to not only as activists but really as society to understand that we are together in a traumatic state and that we have to also be careful uh, with each other and for each other in that space i think is really really uh important for me i've often wondered how that works i'm a child of two psychologists so oh. <laughs> i have many so yeah you, ha you had a head start <laughs> yeah yeah i had a head start and they were quite um 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 they did that quite well they they worked quite well with the fact that they were a psychotherapist and not to bring that let's say to the dinner table but you did get like a free education in in psychology and how defense mechanisms in particular work how people can push away things that they on some level no but then on another level don't digest um so i didn't have necessarily this existential crisis moments this breach but more just something that lingered for a long time and i tried to give it a role in my life in all these different ways and then when extinction rebellion came along uh i remember this big banner on the bridge that said climate change we're fucked and then yeah. the people were blocking the bridge and for me that was <laughs> Uh, really a relief I was like that's that's what we should be doing cutting through the politeness and the hopeful uh bedtime stories for children it's all going to be fine we're going to have brilliant technology or our leaders are going to solve this for us but really just saying it like it is being really a bit brutally honest about it uh, and then taking action in that in the energy that that honesty I think brings so for me there wasn't a big break like we're fucked but there was a big break like we can actually say that we're fucked and take it yeah. from there i guess that's also part of the trauma that on the one hand um you get this message this realization that there's something big going on that we can make sense of and it doesn't seem like the the uh how do you say that the people in charge in the room <laughs> what's what's the term for that uh, the adults in the room the adults in the room our politicians yeah uh are where we buy our food and everything they're not even acknowledging it but the moment that you speak out about it you're yeah you're silenced or you're seen as extreme but actually you're just saying well actually i've read this scientific report and this is what it said yeah exactly yeah it's exactly and it's and it's it's interesting in that sense you know being an activist is not like uh 
a calling for for a select group or something. It's just a way of being a citizen that everybody can sort of do. And and with XR, you practice it because it's quite civil disobedience is a bit more uh, rigorous or a bit more uh, creates a bit more confrontation, a bit more dynamics. Uh, because people can be against it, right? So there's more yeah. opinions surrounding you about it and you can carry that into your work. And what I found really interesting is how in every context, it will bring up different kinds of rationally coded, but quite psychological responses. Like now I have to be objective or neutral, or I don't think we should go into apocalyptic uh, discussions, Or, but if we don't have hope, shouldn't aren't we by definition then hopeless yeah so there's all these different ways of rational rationalizing basically that trauma um that you kind of yeah from that activistic perspective there's a dissonance that that emerges from the encounter that people have with you as an activist and the debates that come and like with the soup being thrown at artworks i think that was really the most <laughs> concentrated form of this like this dissonance happening they really managed to to grasp that whole emotional confrontation in one act which i think was quite brilliant but also taught me again more about what's happening there with this emotional encounter with facts mm -hmm. and it's just crazy to think that throwing soup at the, as a painting uh, in our society is a defense of science and what to say a confrontation with facts yeah whereas in any other context it would be just like uh yeah quite inadmissible i think yeah i mean there's this nice term from communication psychology a pluralistic ignorance which means that people don't want to raise an issue because they think other people don't want to talk about it or don't agree with them or that somehow raising the issue will be problematic and then they don't raise it. And then everybody has that same position where everybody thinks I can't raise this issue. And then you get this situation of pluralistic ignorance where something is not uh, dealt with or spoken about. And I think, yeah, that's what we see happening. And that's what the soup was, was thrown at actually was this, this situation where everybody is able in all their own different ways not to really talk about it, not to really um, encounter the existential level of, of the crisis that we're in. So that we have many crises, especially in the Netherlands. I think this is this neoliberal sort of coding of crisis management where every problem becomes a crisis. Um, Except but the climate crisis, except, as your colleague Hannah points out over yeah. and over again. Yeah. It's like the, the housing crisis, the corona crisis, and this crisis and that crisis, climate change. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's, and I think if you look at that through a psychological lens, it's so clear what's going on there, right? We, it's too big, it's too heavy. So we don't, we just don't want to, we want to maintain uh, the, I, you could almost call it with like Bertolt Brecht with sort of uh, like the fourth wall. We want it to stay a television show. We don't want to be in the burning house. We want to be looking at the film about the burning house and have that distance from it because it's just too much yeah. to let it all in. Yeah. So, oh, okay. Like a distance, it only happens in uh, Pakistan or it only happens, you know, in the far future. Exactly. 
I mean, this was like this was the geopolitical. Like, if you t speak to it in terms of cognitive dissonance or defense, psychological defense mechanism, you could say that two, 2050 is like the geopolitical equivalent of a defense mechanism. It's just pushing it out of the, out of your life, out of the present, uh, and out of that space where you really have to do something about it because it's so big and urgent. Mm -hmm. And that's and that's I think also. Maybe Hannah also spoke about that, but a lot of activists will tell you that it's a big relief to step into, so to speak, that space of activism because it exactly allows you to um, step into that existential space. Like, yes, this is a problem and there's a certain honesty in that. That's also really uh, a relief. Yeah. So, well, that's a great answer to that question about how to deal with, because if you learn about the scientific state of things at this moment then uh, anger is a very uh, healthy response i think yeah and not to feel anger is an unhealthy response or well I, maybe not like that but it's a natural response to to feel angry right and the fact is okay what can you do when you're angry and if you if you're an activist at least you can do something yeah, absolutely. And and so it's 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 also the question of like what group therapy do you want? You know, you want like really pissed off people with fireworks like blocking uh, protesters with cars like we saw in Stophorst a couple of days ago or do you want sort of these like climate activistic modes of group therapy where you deal with with problems in a in a non-violent and caring way? So this is the way I look at these different kinds of group manifestations now as different forms of dealing with emotions um and i mean anger is is a part of extinction rebellion and climate activists of course as much as it is of let's say more xenophobic or um i mean let's 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 try not to stick too many labels on them but both yeah xenophobic and other types of uh, farmers protests and stuff but the anger gets channeled in a really different way um my problem there is especially when you see a lot of climate psychology and climate communications a lot of attention is paid to uh, despair depression hopelessness helplessness these kinds of emotions which are all really also present but anger is often still slightly taboo because it's of course also like an anti-social emotion in a sense it's a societally threatening emotion so it's harder to talk about anger in ways that don't immediately sort of lead to uh, extremist uh, or or societally uh, um, rupturing or violent manifestations. So you won't hear a lot of people saying that it's good for kids to be angry about climate change. Whereas I think, yeah, it's it's really healthy. But but as a society, we don't manage, I think, yet to to talk about anger in a way that's uh, not immediately also associated with violence or transgression, but can actually be be healing and be held within a non-violent space. I heard stories about how children respond to when they learn about the climate conference, what, oh, what are they talking about and everything. They learn about it a little bit, they get explained it in their language and then they get angry. <laughs> yeah. 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 If you're not angry, you're not paying attention, right? Yeah. So how, how do you look at Plato's allegory? I thought about it a lot since you, since you told me about your uh, concept. Um, because it's, 
there's so much in there, of course, as you as you know and have explored in all your shows. Um, I work a lot uh, in relation to modernity, as let's say the last 500 years, uh, as a first of all as an intellectual and scientific history, but then also, of course, as a as a political history, let's say. Um, and then somehow Plato's cave seems to be the prototype, uh, right, of that history. And of course, the Renaissance is this rediscovery of of the of the ancients of the Greeks, uh, where the Greeks are also somehow an origin story, uh, somehow the moment that something came out of nothing, and then the, the birth of is, civilization, the like birth that, of civilization, yeah. yeah, out of prehistory, out of out of a non-conscious sort of like non-Hegelian, you know, like uh, um, mucking about in nature and telling each other myths about uh, trees being conscious and stuff, and and Plato's cave seems to be the perfect uh site to talk about that because it's this first time and i don't know if it's historically the first time but it's famously the first time that this uh, image gets positioned between uh, a real world that is no longer real and then an unreal world that becomes real the world of the ideas in, but in particular for me with this cheeky third person somehow outside of these two positions describing them and not really explaining themselves where they are you mean uh, like the person who tells about well socrates in yeah. this case who's explaining yeah. well imagine people in a cave and this happens yeah. and this happens but where is socrates when he's telling yeah. that yeah is this is this is this is like is this is this a, where are you in your story and that's for me in my thinking is always like the main thread is always this question for me that's the big question uh, of the environment is always where is the environment uh, of the one telling the story how do you situate yourself in the environment that you're describing um, instead of this idea with plato of being able to project onto a wall images um, which don't have anything to do with you the question of yeah um, where does the story emerge from and how does the story emerge and, and i was flashing this book at you uh just before we started from uh havelock this philologist this uh, scholar of of the ancients of greek uh, history who wrote this book preface to plato about uh plato's thinking but not as this origin story but rather as a in historical continuity with the oral history that came let's say before uh, the platonic tradition and what i love about that he's, he writes it almost at the same time that foucault uh, wrote his uh, his uh, archaeology of knowledge so end of the 60s and it's really brilliant to read somebody not talking about plato as as the starting point of metaphysics and how we sort of discovered rationality and abstract thinking but as an actor in a society that was changing from an oral power structure where uh, hierarchy and knowledge was transferred through an oral apparatus where certain ways of speaking certain ways of remembering uh, were used to yeah have a, as he calls it a book of a culture so like the, the technology by which you hold together your way of thinking and speaking and he was reinventing with a whole group of people uh this but against the old power structures against the authority of the spoken word and the act of speaking that 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 made pol politics possible in in the let's say pre-socratic 
uh, Greek society. So, yeah, in that sense, he really shows how Plato didn't necessarily, um, first of all, that he didn't invent it, invent it on his own as a as an act of, of singular genius, but was a product of his environment, was a product of his times. And if you look at his work in that way, and he does this in this whole book, you suddenly see that um, the way he's positioning himself and the way he's positioning his thought is not uh, of itself, but is rather really like you can really um, set it against his political opponents, another mode of education system that was being still being uh, yeah, worked with uh, in his age. And he was proposing with the academy, of course, a very different way of working, a different way of using language. Of, of thinking and for me that really uh, just shows uh, well two things on the one hand this uh, habit that we learned with Plato of having this sort of self-enclosed system with the uh, conceptual being more real than the practical whereas in the oral histories before that you always started with the practical and then you drew your lessons or your laws were always a consequence of the narrative story of the real story uh, that was happening to people in an, in a mythical age so just to, just to make sure that i understand that part so the conceptual being more real than the practical do you mean that because plato uh, his message of the allegory would be that the you know the practical the things that we see around us are just the shadows on the wall but they're yeah. actually a conceptual part, and that conceptual part is actually more real than what we exactly. see. Exactly. Yeah. And 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 if you think about his situation, where you have these oral histories, the these Homeric stories, which were also ways of conveying knowledge, uh, how how um, yeah, how to do things, how to speak to a king, how to wage a war, you know, how to uh, um, be a leader. Um, how to make these, it in the world. How to make it in the world, but also how to conduct oneself in the society one is a part of, right, essentially, uh, crucially. And so for Plato said, like, the way Homer and the way our society is telling our kids how to behave with these stories, that's just that's just uh, shadows on the walls. That's kind of like bullshit, right? It's It's all about these higher forms of knowledge, these abstract forms of knowledge, which... Um, are possible in a society that is transferring oral knowledge to written knowledge, where, of course, you can be much more abstract. You can use words in different ways. You can make different kinds of logical uh, sequences. So, yeah, it was kind of a, a like a, a coup, a, a changing of the episteme that he was part of. Um, but that also, I think, puts this whole idea about metaphysics on a really different position because it is no longer somehow something uh that we are grasping of a higher law but it is rather uh you know like a, a political ecology it is a it is a, a knowledge that is always captured in a in a politics in an environment uh from which it emerges and for me this is a nice prehistory to modernity this cave and this this battle for for what is true and who is able to speak um, that sort of if you look at you know the Cartesian space for me would almost also be this this kind of garden this new story with the same kind of uh, premises where you say like 
the world that we know and that is available to everybody um, in everyday experience is something we have to kind of get rid of. And we replace that with this structured, uh, logical, rational order, which is abstract. And then we start thinking from, from that space and we start to assign everybody roles from that space. Uh, as Plato said, you know, the horse, the idea of the horse is actually more real than all the horses we see running around. Um, and in modernity, it is still kind of the case that, uh, that the laws of nature, um, uh, from from Newton to a lot of um, population biologists uh, and ecologists still working today, will always be these mechanic rules that are more real than than the phenomena we are seeing. And then, um, you know, if we look around us and see how the world is responding to this way of of working with it, putting the rules first and then the the consequences later, it's turning into a really big mess. So for me, this is. Let's say trying to understand the history of how we got into this mess where we are constantly destroying the environment and then trying to understand like at what points in our intellectual history did we make these big shifts from taking the environment as our starting point to taking our own logic as a starting point and then only allowing the environment in to the extent that it fits our rules and our conceptual uh, understanding of the world. Yeah, when you put it that way, it reminds me of something that Marcia Björnerud, a geologist, I spoke to her before in the podcast, but the first time I spoke to her was uh, also about her book, Timefulness. Do you know it by any chance? No, but no, it's good. It's a great uh, short book um, uh, about, yeah, timefulness is like an awareness of time. And one of the reasons she says we are in this mess is because we are living, we are not li we're not timeful. We're not aware of the th the time scale of our pla the planet that we we live on. Mm. And in the beginning, one of the th she's what she's describing is how um, geology um, uh, evolved, but how at one point um, this was hindered because it was in a I don't know the exact period, but it was in a period where the physical sciences, so physics was just yeah the uh, the showing everything was just the master and showing we can calculate this we can calculate that and um the geologists were looking at the complexity and and the stones and the feedback mechanisms and and let's say the pra the practical reality mm -hmm. in that sense and there were some um i would say uh the 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 one the physicist who um discovered some of these great laws about for instance thermodynamics and everything also applied this to the planet and um was dismissing ideas from geology like uh, that are now commonplace but mm. uh i think she one of the things she says is that this also uh had to do with with the platonic uh forms with the ideas that there are laws of nature and once we have grasped these laws of nature, we can explain everything. And if something happens that doesn't fit the law of nature, that's not the fault of the law. That's, yeah, we have to find another way to do that. The problem, yeah, exactly. how, however, is that it requires you, it requires you to be the person that Plato 
speaks about which got out of the cave was able to see the truth and then return into the cave yeah 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 return into the cave and then of course the question is like what is this cave right so so um what's outside of the cave would be actually be my better question rather than the transcendental higher higher objects maybe the 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 rest of the world so to speak uh and what i found really striking about that uh, encounter of plato with the let's say pre-socratic greek culture uh, politics, the way society was organized, the way knowledge functioned within society, is that it reminds me a lot of also the encounter, let's say, of us moderns uh, with indigenous cultures, because it's actually more or less the same kind of um, confrontation between a knowledge system uh, that accepts that there are other knowledge systems in the world um, and that, that that performs its own knowledge system consciously in its uh, myths and its uh, traditions and its gestures of culture and the one that somehow wants to forget that it is also a myth or a, or a culture and that wants to go reach beyond that uh, um, let's say performative way of understanding the world and building a cosmology having a cosmos with coordinates within which you function where you know what I think in particular geology also still tries to do is try to find this third point this position outside of the system and then be able to see the whole system um, and and it has been critiqued also a lot especially from uh decolonial perspectives right this idea that geology and the whole geologic the logic of the planet as this thing that you can know per se was also a way for um colonial powers to legitimize their own uh conquest of the earth and the and the exploitation of resources as these geological phenomena that that are inanimate and um, basically resources. Um, so I find it interesting that we are come now to a point in our history where uh, maybe like in sixteen hundred something uh, we reproduced this Greek gesture of clearing out all the environment and saying no there's beyond the environment there's these rules and laws that that drive the mechanism like this clock and we now understand that there's we only see the clock but actually it's a machine with maybe God somewhere uh, building the clock making the machine um, and I come now to a point especially with climate crisis where we see that that whole way of looking at the world there's always something outside of it that we're missing and that can bite you in the ass and is doing so with us at, at this huge scale so when it comes to you know like looking at the world from a geological lens I think there's of course all these debates about the Anthropocene and all these scenes uh, no, what, is the, what is the age that we're living in what is the geological yeah. age that we're living in yeah, yeah. and everybody is playing with that idea with you can you can say oh it's the capitillo scene so it's about capitalism or it's the euro scene it's about european conquest of the world and there's all these beautiful terms the plantation scene i think is a really good one saying that it's the, the logic of the plantation of monoculture that has um taken over the world and that even AI and ro robotics is actually a continuation of that logic of using slave labor to exploit the land. Um, but yeah, my question with all these geologics, all these ways of seeing the planet would still be like, 
Are you not again making a Plato's cave? You know, are you not again making a closed system, which has to somehow completely be explained by your rules or your logic that you're bringing in? So for me, the the geology is a really interesting one because it's also a backdoor for these totalizing systems that think they find all the rules and then are able to close. But then once you're closed, you know, you forget that there's always more and yeah, for me, that would be the, the simplest way to explain the, the climate crisis is that we that the dominant planetary culture is a is a European Western culture that has this really deep, deeply rooted tradition and um, habit of wanting closed systems, needing feeling only that you're you're there or you've achieved it or it makes sense when it's closed. So a closed system is like uh, we know everything that we need to know. For instance, there's always a point when some scientific findings, IPCC reports do come true to politics and then they comment on it. And then usually the comment is, well, maybe we have to ask some technology people if they can invent a technology that will solve the climate Mm. crisis. And I think there are even some efforts already about uh, geoengineering, which no geologists or climate scientists will ever <laughs> say is the answer but it's i've is that what you mean it's like a way of thinking like oh we uh, we just calculate everything and then we put some rain there and we put some chemicals there and then we can fix we can geoengineer our way yeah. out of it we can fix our way out of it yeah you know it's it's i think there's a couple of layers you could could describe like i would say that it's this idea of full understanding you know like newton with his physics kind of proposed us that now we have the laws we have these formulas and then we can understand everything if you know all the laws and all the initial positions then you can calculate the rest of yeah time then the whole world runs like clockwork basically because all the things are in the right place now that's of course also a very monotheistic way way of thinking and uh you know newton was really religious and also an alchemist, but really a spiritual person with the deep faith in God. So for him, of course, force was uh, like the basis of his uh, mathematics, but that was in itself not explained. So force was basically for him unproblematic because obviously that was God, you know, pushing the whole whole clockwork forward. Um, so in that in that story, in the Cartesian story, in the story of geoengineering there's always this assumption that we can know the whole thing and then we can control it and then we crafty humans can invent all this kind of stuff and then the republic will be perfect everything will be in its right place and there will be no more fear of uh, the environment or of like a tiger you know biting your leg off you'll be uh, safe and comfortable so it's to come back to the beginning of our conversation i think it's the same type of psychology that that people are not able to bring on board the existential character of the climate crisis is the same kind of sense of wanting to keep uh, a total complete understanding keeping total control of the situation and not allowing in fundamental uncertainty and therefore fundamental openness so i think you can talk about it you know historically or psychologically or uh, more scientifically but it's always about this question of openness and totality i think and yeah geoengineering is like the biggest band-aid ever on a system that's 
leaking terribly and and and, and going uh, really wrong. The sort of modern idea of science and technology uh, saving us every time from itself, and then sticking on these these huge problematic techno fixes. Whereas if we look back at the history of technology, as Benjamin Breton says nicely, no seatbelts without a car, right? And no car accidents without a car. So every technology makes its own accidents and makes its own problems. But even though we're in the biggest uh, problem of them all with the climate crisis, still the lesson doesn't seem to sink in with people that it's, it, there is not this enclosed space that is completely knowable and therefore predictable and therefore manageable. And so any technology we will make and that promises finally to close the gaps and to create a totality will always create its its own further problems. And I think geoengineering is maybe like now we are going for planetary scale uh, problem solving with technology because we have reached planetary scale problems of technology, right? First, we we developed a, a techno sphere uh, industry on a planetary scale that's now really wrecking the planet basically on every me metric you can imagine so then the response is well let's double down and make planetary technologies to solve those problems but yeah one wonders when uh, the realization will sink in that there's an intrinsic uh, problem with this way of thinking um yeah and that's something that yeah you can approach on different levels with your practice. So I try with the activism. I think it's really interesting to talk about the emotional dimension. And with more philosophy and theory, you can talk more about the scientific heritage, what's beneath the politics and the economics, basically. What kind of basic assumptions about how we can know the world and the world works allow us to make this mistake again and again and again. Right. A few weeks ago, I thought, well, actually, we're always speaking about that our technology is so advanced. But I don't really think it's so advanced because it's got, it's driving climate change. So, and climate change is, is like <laughs> threatening us. So I don't think it's like a car that doesn't have seat belts and, and everything like that and a brake and, mm. and all that. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the emissions from the car go right into the window where the people are <laughs> sitting. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But so our our technology is based on taking um, uh, energy out of something which is put in, for instance, in the ground through a natural process or natural. Let's avoid that word, but a process which uh, in the history of the planet is used to st stabilize. So have a stability between uh, the CO2 and, and other kind of gases that are in the sky, in, in, the, in the environment, and the ones that are in the earth. And it's taking those out of the earth and then putting them in the sky. So if we take humans out of the equation, it's like uh, uh, putting a, a fume pipe into the earth and, and interfering with something that's happening in the earth. Yeah. Okay. I, I just said I want to make it very simple, but it's like basically the simplest thing is that our technology that has brought us so much good that um, 
you're you're in a different part of the country than me where we're able to speak to each other and record this and put it out there which is great i think but it's also causing the topic that we're speaking about yeah and then of course like it's not a choice between zoom and uh, climate change but yeah you could at some point wonder like how to weigh these different elements uh compared to each other right like how to value zoom versus climate change and their relations it's of course super complex uh story but it also goes to the question of i liked this term timefulness that you that you brought in and that uh the climate crisis is on such a huge time scale uh we usually don't think beyond 2100 but it's of course like thousands of years into the future that we are now determining these planetary processes um with humanity, with certain humans, uh, the power is not uh, with all of us, of course, in equal measure, but it's such a big scale of time to think about um, uh, and then also to have moral thoughts about. So I also think that's a challenge we face now to together to develop the language in all these conversations we're having about these big skills, but then also to create like a moral sensibility to that, which we don't have, especially in Western cultures. We don't have an intergenerational way of thinking about morality. We don't think about uh, what we inherit from our ancestors as something that's alive in us and something that we have to to respond to or have a responsibility to, let alone thinking generations ahead to how you know, our, our our actions as ancestors affect others. And happily, some authors have now brought this into the conversation, like Roman Kresnik, right, with his good ancestor book uh, and this intergenerational thinking. But that's, of course, is also ecological thinking to my mind. Ecology is all about, you know, like generating, uh, growing, but also about the way that generations fit together like a forest also moves but it moves intergenerationally it doesn't move per individual tree and we are so stuck in this individualistic framework it's really hard for us to talk about and think about climate change because we just don't have that we just don't have that scope of of thinking or feeling in ways that are with others that are moral in that sense but that's the part that i don't get because it's it's not i mean for me it's very concrete if uh, so the we just had the climate conference in egypt where nothing really happened that should happen <laughs> um, and those are people in power they can actually do something if they if they come together and say we agree on this they do it. they can do it but they didn't do it and this affects and many of them have children and grandchildren and if if you have a child right now that's under uh, under 20 or under 10 years old they will they will live in a completely different world and that's the part i don't get because i get you know there's the the horizons of um the tragedy of the horizons that it's very hard you know we can prevent suffering in the future but because it's too abstract for us we don't do it and we focus on the suffering now like uh farmer protests or shrinking economy or having to change uh, you know not go on holiday with the airplane but the part i don't get maybe you can explain to me is that the people 
that I can do something about that they have children and grandchildren and what they're doing is kind of destroying the future of their own children mm. and their own grandchildren. Yeah. I mean, that's a big question, of course. I can try to at least carry forward some threads of this conversation. Um, some people call it a crisis of the imagination also, for example, right? That we cannot mm. imagine these futures. Um, so emotionally connecting to the science is in itself a problem, but maybe in between that you have to be able to translate graphs and squiggly lines and long tables of numbers and statistical probabilities and scenarios into a living world uh into an idea of a world that you are in so that fourth wall again of of is it just a tv show that you're watching or is it something that you're inhabiting that you have an active living relationship to so in that sense it's really in plato's cave if you think it's just uh, on the screens it's not really happening it's like yeah, a reverse well, a plato's cave <laughs> Yeah, because you're so used to being in the ideas thing, which is actually not real, that yeah. you don't... Yeah, and the cave is... is Who cares about the effing cave, right? The cave is just uh, some shadows on a wall, whereas, yeah, it's actually your house. Um, so I think that it's also about when you talk about intergenerational um, mor morality or relationships, the quality of the relationship is, I think, the question. So... Like how do you relate to your grandchild's future and to the and and to that future being in a living world with all these other living entities and you know if you look I'm working now a lot also with uh, First Nation and in particular Aboriginal uh, knowledge systems to understand how like what's before Plato is also outside of us as moderns in the West but it's still all these cultures where okay most of them have been really um, done a lot of violence too but a lot of them are still living cultures and there you see that that these kinship systems are incredibly important not as quaint archaic um, beliefs that are wrong according to all these men of science of europe but that it's a different quality of experience that they provide which is provides a different types of technologies different ways of surviving and living together that um that are relational but that also really give you different agency in the world that really give you a different sense of what you should and can do so if we think about all these leaders sitting there in in, in a egyptian resort town sponsored by coca-cola trying to solve uh, the world's problems given that they have kids and they're probably not evil they probably don't see themselves as evil people they probably have positive motivations for doing what they do they probably have a, a positive story about their life i wonder where their relationships with the world begin and end and you know like plato came from the greek time and then oikos the household was kind of invented as this enclosed space where you had certain responsibilities and certain rules came from that how to manage that closed space um, and there was a very small oikos. You had the polis, a small city-state, and then you had your household and your slaves and your family that you were responsible to manage well. So that's um, where the word economy comes from, right? From oikos. Yeah, the, so yeah. oikos. How oikos to manage your house. Yeah. How oh. to manage your house. And ecology, ecology as well. well. Yeah, oh, so that's that ecology yeah. also has a dubious history in that sense. Yeah. But then the question is always, and this is for me the environmental question, what is your house? 
And how do you relate to everything in your house? And then, of course, patriarchally, we can say this is my house and it's like I have my my family in there. But the planet can also be your house or maybe somewhere in between. So the Aboriginal people say, you know, country. And that's a really specific word that uh, indicates like all the living relationships, but also the mythological and the narrative and all the meanings, also the ways the birds, the languages birds have amongst each other. That's all part of country as this emergent whole that you have um, responsibilities to, but also relationships with. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a poverty of world, a poverty of relationships, like this really shitty small oikos house in which you think you live and that you feel feel responsible for in a positive way that you have a positive story about like like i am i'm doing well for my household for my kids maybe my family this is just far too small i speak to a lot of people who are like well sometimes i speak to people who are sort of ceos or something of big companies and they'll be really really try to be good parents try to be good for the future of their kids and that might be even be the reason that they're like pocketing huge paychecks to secure the future of their family so for their oikos and their relationships they're taking care oh, that's it's a really nice perspective i didn't i never looked at it like that but it's like what do you see as your house your ecology your world but also your yeah economy where, of course, the argument of our own prime minister is, well, okay, we have to do something about the climate crisis. He said, action, action, action in the yeah. <laughs> previous, which is just very funny. But he's also saying, yeah, but it has to be affordable. And mm. step by step, because we also have to keep the economy going. And yeah, so yeah, it's, it's not just like, I think there's also people who are only thinking about their family. Like, okay, my it doesn't matter because my grandchildren can go on Elon Musk's spaceship to to Mars because they'll be so rich. But there are also like family businesses and everything that say, well, but we are providing jobs. We're taking care of the people in our business. And there we have so many employees. And we also have this whole country. We have the farmers. Uh, we have to make sure our country is uh, doing well. Mm. So, yeah, they're saying, well we are taking care of the future because we need the economy in the future. Yeah. And then people like you may be saying, yeah, but what, what if there's no planet anymore, then where will you do all that stuff? Yeah. On your asteroid uh, village. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, so this, I find this really fascinating that a simple question, like what is the environment? If you pose it to Plato, you suddenly get a very different understanding of why he proposed his way of thinking and we don't need to take that in the same way that he said it because actually we, his story is only half of the story because the other half of the story is the world he was living in and talking to and with and from um, but we miss out on that right so we only see Plato's story and we think wow that's a great story um, and maybe like Mark Rutte a lot of people who are proud entrepreneurs, they also only just hear the story that he, he talks about and think like, okay, so that's the story. That's all we need to know. Um, we we have our total full understanding because yeah. we... If people have work and they have, they have sufficient money, they can take off their basic needs, then they'll be happy and they can make free cho choices. I mean, it's a good story, right? Makes sense to me. Yeah. yeah. And it's a, and it's a, and it's a, it's a full story. 
So there's nothing left out yeah. uh, seemingly, or it's not a story that says this is a partial story. It's a story that says this is all we need to know. Uh, and that's of course a danger where, you know, like the, the middle of the road right wing and the far right have a really good conversation with each other about uh, this enclosed space of Netherlands or of the economy and jobs um, that that we have a right to naturally because we live here um, because we are a hardworking Dutch people or hardworking people from a certain group. So we don't have to think beyond uh, our borders and we certainly are not going to listen to people from other positions speaking from other oikos and understand that they also have a place to be it's not really interesting to us so I think it's always really fascinating to just keep on asking just pulling at the sweater thread asking but what is the environment what is your environment what is the broader story that you're speaking from and you can of course ask that question endlessly and end up somewhere far in the edges of the galaxy you know, talking about stars and gravity and all kinds of, of things, but you can also end up with really personal, emotional stories about people's histories and maybe what their grandparents told them or in other cultures, what their ancestors tell them still from, from you know, the stars or from, from the sea or, or how they conceive of these relationships. So, um, yeah, and to me, the climate crisis is just this avalanche it's a literal avalanche, but it's also an avalanche of evidence that however we try to close our story, uh, there's always something else coming in. Um, for the far right people, it's migration often, right? It's like everything would be fine if not for all these damned foreigners coming into our country and messing up our economy and our, our household. Um, but I think the real one is, yeah, that there is no away, as Timothy Morton says. So as long as you keep thinking you're pushing things away or throwing things out, they're still there. So all these walls that we try to build are in the end still relationships, but they're just relation they become relationships of violence instead of being able to be relationships, you know, that, that you can be non-violent uh, with. And this is really the yeah, the the double problem that we're facing now. On the one hand that this thinking that there's an outside that we can put all our trash in and all the negative consequences of our technologies and our economies um, is simply be, is boiling over, is, is, is coming back to haunt us in the biggest way possible. But also the idea of people who are not like us or people who have different opinions from us, we don't have to talk to them. We don't want to know what they're saying. They just have to leave. Uh, these two things are coming up together now. You know, like populism, fascism is is really becoming on the radar for for lots of people again. I think the debate about can we call it fascism uh, has been sort of finished in the sense of okay, we can talk about this phenomenon being back, coming up again. Uh, at the same time that the pressures from the environment are coming coming back, so the outside is and the relationship to what we think is outside of our house is becoming a really emotional psychological and rational challenge now so that's the diagnosis do you also have a solution where do you because you're you're an activist and you're also an academic you also publish sometimes opinion pieces in newspapers 
at least that's what I, I've just been following you for a few weeks. So that's what I've been seeing. There's probably loads of other things you do as well. So it's kind of like journalism, being there in the media, being, you know, on blocking the freeway with, with Hannah and uh, others. And, yeah. but you also work for an academic institution. So how, yeah, how do you see that balance? How do you combine the, how do you find your way in, in all this? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, let's say there's a really personal motivation to to do it like this. And that's, again, about this timefulness that that the activism is is really for, of the now. And it's really even the demands of Extinction Rebellion are like that. You have to stop all the fossil subsidies now, not tomorrow, not in a negotiated settlement ending in 15 years with lots of loopholes. A really clear way of inhabiting the now according to what you think is necessary so on a personal level well what you think is necessary that's what the scientists say we have to do <laughs> yeah exactly yeah yeah backed up by the largest largest possible scientific consensus um but but the act of doing it is a willful act it's a moral act also it's also in that sense of you know you're not in the house but you're in the society in this in the polis saying something you think everybody um should should respond to that is a question that we all should be talking about so it's very acute and the energy this has a certain energy and also a certain emotional role that we also started with this existential sense of wow all the science is saying something so getting onto the street is a way to really respond to that uh, and make it real uh, and make also your inner life connect to what you know about the world by doing something so once i sit on the street and i come home the universe is balanced again for a little while even though all the news is still happening and all the 1.5 degrees two degrees four degrees kinds of traumatic information flow continues everything is is um in balance for a little while and then the academic work from again from the personal perspective is far more um long term so it's far more stretched out i mean before you get the article published can be one and a half years like when you start planning an action maybe six weeks later the action happens so there's very different um time leanness timefulness to that work but also you're talking to a different group of people so we were talking about having relationships to your ancestors like they're real people i mean i think academics also have a relationship to other academics that's not only like hey mario we're talking now on zoom but also you're talking to people i mean depending maybe also on your ambitions uh and, and what kind of writing you're doing but you're always talking to people also in five years or something or maybe 10 years or even longer so especially when it's you write a tweet or do something which is on the internet exactly exactly so and i find that very uh comfort comforting i would it would be a bit traumatic for me to only be in the now and only be doing the activism because it would because it's because it's so short and so acute yeah uh, that that there's very little space uh, in that to stretch out a little into time and also to relate to the future in different ways so for me the ac academic work um so it's on ecological governance this is let's say my pro proposition and i see that as a question for 2040 
and not to be super arrogant about it. And maybe also everything is messed up so much by then, you know, that we don't have access to journals anymore. But in my mental space, the that work stretches to 2040. So it has a very different temporality, um, but also a very different world it responds to. Because, of course, in 2040, the world is going to be uh, far more chaotic than it is now. Uh, something just clicked for me there when... I recognize something of myself in that. I was listening to another podcast. Okay, this is more for the Dutch people, but a podcast by Theo Maase, who's a Dutch comedian. Mm. And he's doing a podcast which is called Erfaring for Beginners, which is really, really good. Um, uh, Experience for novices. (laughs) So he's speaking with experienced uh, artists and comedians and makers and everybody about it. And he was uh, speaking with uh, Paul De Leeuw, who who is now i think in his 60s or something mm-hmm. and he was asking how if he if you sing a sentimental song uh, he made some songs that really touch people like people request him at funerals to sing that song how do you make sure that you don't get overwhelmed by the emotions and his answer was he heard it from a mentor of his again his answer was that um when you're reading that you have to read two lines ahead Mm. So you're singing the lyrics that if you really would connect with them, you would just start crying, which is not good if you're singing. (laughs) But (laughs) instead you focus as well on, um, uh, you're already actually two lines ahead, you're already in the future. And I just connected this to kind of my own, yeah, way of, of dealing with the anger about the inaction about people who who are aware of the science which is pretty much everyone and who are yet choosing not to do anything with with anyway that anger yeah Yeah. (laughs) by also knowing that that uh when sometimes i'm speaking with someone and i know okay i know they're not going to get it i know they're sometimes a person who went to university who are actually in a scientific profession but the things that they're saying are just science denial you know about the climate crisis yeah so then sometimes my my way of dealing with the anger is to to say something not to them now but to to them maybe in two years or something or to them when the next warmest day of the year comes or the next flood or something like that yeah so it's I, I don't know does that make sense to you? So it's like part of yeah. you, you know from philosophy like for like for instance Heidegger we don't live just in the present we're extended we also live in the future maybe we even primarily live in the future. Yeah, yeah, and it's like you know you have the you had the ecolog or what is it yeah the the ecological footprint that that BP uh, British Petroleum some time ago like proposed like we have to all manage our own ecological footprint yeah so that you know and that's so that's a really small time space to live in basically it was very much a spreadsheet in the now and I have to do my plastic and I have to not you know like uh, use too much gas and stuff and then somebody other somebody else came up with the climate shadow which was this idea that your behavior influences others, um, both, let's say, as a consumer, but especially also as a citizen or a friend or a colleague. And and that actually has much more impact as a social being than purely as a consuming uh, entity. So already there you see that your um, 
your extension in time and space becomes already a bit larger, but you have to kind of get it right. You have to understand like, ah, I'm, I'm influencing my friends maybe in a positive way. Or, you know, when I, when I, um, we, we are making more plants in our garden now uh, here in Zandam. And then you see the neighbors at a certain point also putting some more flowers in their garden. So there's all these ways in which you can influence your surroundings, but you do have to look at it from that perspective. And that's something you have to kind of learn and experience. So when you look at Extinction Rebellion, what I love about that is that you there also learn experientially, like, ah, so if we do this together, and, and it's not about kind of claiming like a heroic leadership role or anything, it's about doing it together and supporting each other in it. Like the the, the leading person is the group. And with that, we can actually really do the stuff that we usually feel so helpless and powerless against um, because we gather and we come together and we grow. It's this also old sort of socialist uh, feeling maybe of time space, but now without the modernistic ideology. So yeah, I, I try to think in it of it in those uh, terms. And, and then again, this idea of relationality also to, you know, like indigenous cultures, cultures that they also have this different time space because they have these cultural technologies, if you want to call them that, these emotional repositories, these uh, these books of how to live together that, that manage to bring in all this time and all this space into something that you can feel and understand. So it's not only a rational thought, but it's also something you can live in. And then from that sense, and so that's also kind of like building your house out to make it bigger, to make the oikos bigger and bring more things into it. Um, and then you come to the point of, for me, the point of agency of this idea of like, what am I able to do is always also a question of what do I think is the environment I'm in or how, how do I see my house? And, and it's something that you can do together. So um you know, if you think you are in a tiny consumerist house with a lot of apps and a big bank account, yeah, then there's your agency is also limited to those things. And then you have your ecological footprint or your climate footprint. If you see yourself as a social being with friends and relationships, okay, then your agency is suddenly maybe also to be part of, of these different trends and these different ideas that can be shared and can spread. And then if you're a part of a movement, wow, you know, that's a big time space. But if you're a part of uh, a tradition that goes back seven generations and forward seven generations. I can only imagine how that really feels because I would you have to practice that culturally with your with your surroundings to be able to do it. But that's imagine what kind of you know spread out big world you're living in. Then how much agency you also have in the world. It's quite uh, spectacular. And then the modern men of science would laugh maybe at that and say like yeah, but these are like pre-moderns these are people that don't understand science don't understand the way things work you know what kind of technologies do they have you know they can't even zoom with each other uh, by distance and make a great podcast about it but well you know what what are we missing from from what they are experiencing yeah what do we do we not see yeah i was uh again in, just an association but uh, it's quite ironic that the climate uh, conference was in egypt who were able to build the pyramids that we couldn't build today. Even yeah. if, if we would figure out we would have the tools that they have, we couldn't build them. 
I, I just saw this this program with Ruud Gullet uh, speaking. <laughs> I just realized the Dutch, uh, you know, the Dutch football just started in Qatar, which is an, a yeah. whole other story. Um, just kind of mixing some things together, but um, I think uh, so. This is I don't know if this is an indigenous culture. I don't think so, but it's at least an, an ancient civilization that was able to do something that we cannot dispute because tourists can go there every year and uh, it's perfectly lined uh like it's it's straight the pyramid is really big it's very straight and there's only just a few millimeters margin of error which is even with modern tools is really really hard to do and they were able to do it the thing that fascinates me is that apparently they knew something that we don't and um yeah so I guess that was yeah. my association, kind of a humility. Okay, we know many things. We can zoom, but we cannot build the pyramid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that maybe that also to just keep kind of telescoping back and forth to back to Plato's time and then to climate change and, and to the Egyptians that, um, you know, what happens when there's the cave and the ideas what happens when there's uh, the world and the science and the laws is also that plato knows the horse the idea of the horse he's been up there out of the cave uh, so like whatever anybody else says about the horse you know, they can go uh, you know like um, figure it out for themselves because plato has the truth uh, and there's only one truth um even also in modern science you have all these people like isabella stengers and stuff talking about this like where there's this uh, idea that our our way of looking at the world um, is the better one because it's the progressive one because it's the next step in history and it it doesn't replace things that were different but that were smaller and less and now it's more and better and that's this okay it's super arrogant and a bit silly but it's also it creates such a huge blind spot because you can only replace things with what's somehow better so there's no space for different things to exist next to each other which are different and it's it's such a simple thing to say like oh wait you can look at the world in different ways there are different ways of understanding technology and we are not always on the pinnacle of history and humanity and the world as as white guys uh talking together on zoom but it's just different and it's really hard for people to deal with that basic idea which is a very non-violent idea to say like you know like i'm not going to colonize you or i'm not going to claim that i know everything and that my thing is always the best and then also be afraid of the next person coming along always that will say like haha you were wrong i have an even better idea and then you get sort of erased and the next person wins it's also this really uh, zero-sum competitive idea of how you can explain the world and, and be in the world that is both really scientific but also really emotional and also makes for this really destructive uh, habit of it being weird that the Egyptians would be able to do something, the ancient Egyptians, that we cannot. Whereas it's there's so many things we probably cannot do that other people could do, but we just kind of erase that from, from memory or try to erase it at least. Yeah, and they also had their own versions of uh, cave allegories but that's for for another time i just uh, yeah i was thinking about wh- how we started you were st- speaking about 
a phenomenon about let's say a group of people that share something but they don't realize they share share it like uh, we can say people in a modern city often feel lonely and chances are that their neighbor is lonely as well mm. uh, but they don't realize that the other person is lonely so they don't drink tea together which you know would make them very happy yeah that's just my own thinking now about the cave is when when the uh, prisoner returns he wants to share something with the people who are still there but uh, they try to kill him his message does not come across well it's easy to think of uh, socrates in this uh, sense as uh, like a activist who's trying yeah. to come, come wake up people i mean the the world is ending and we but actually uh, he has a very positive message but the thing about it is that maybe what this person is trying to share is not so much going physically outside of something and seeing something and going back but maybe it's let's say a subjective experience what we would call a subjective experience mm. like maybe um finding out about climate science and and just thinking what what the fuck is going on and getting very angry and upset about it and then try trying to talk about it with, with your family or with your co-workers or whatever and they don't they don't connect and mm. um yeah but this is of course like it connects for to me for me to two things on the one hand this idea of you know like we had this perfect household and everything was fine yeah and we were having started, fun uh, yeah and then something from outside came in which we thought wasn't there and um and now we're really pissed off at the person who showed us that the wall is a relationship and that there's actually all these like foreign agents from bacteria to people with other skin colors that might suddenly like disrupt our our uh safe space so in that sense maybe plato had some um there was some sense to plato's uh allegory in terms of uh, you know like how environments uh, and humans interact um but especially also what i like what i like about this heritage from plato and socrates is this idea of the per the parisiest the truth speaker I, I think that's also really relevant to to activism now where like the first demand of extinction rebellion is tell the truth yeah and then of course that could be like tell the thing the person up in the sky with the mathematical ideas saw and bring it back to the silly people in the cave but i like the dutch translation which is wees uh, eerlijk which is more like be honest than tell the truth so so it's less about having a thing that other people don't have and it's more about as you said a subjective experience or like bringing something existential into a conversation which doesn't need to exclude other things but that according to like Michel Foucault this famous French philosopher talked wrote a whole did a whole series of lectures about this ancient Greek idea of Parisia which is then truth telling truth speaking and that it it, it you can only do it if it if there's a risk uh, if you put yourself at risk to your community so if this truth is uncomfortable to the community and speaking the truth means that you might not be accepted anymore by your community there was a specific word for that in greek and socrates was like the ultimate so somehow example of that and then he drank the cup of poison as the consummation of his uh, truth-telling practice 
but that is something that is very recognizable in this age that it's that it's it is a truth in in the sense that the way we are in the world the way that the dynamics around us in the world behave we know with enough certainty that the co2 molecule causes heating and we we, we you know like science is a construction but um facts are made but they're not made up as donna haraway says so this is not a made up truth that they are made truths but but they work and we know the consequences thereof but bringing them into society that is still in the house or behind the fourth wall watching the television show uh, of the climate change if you tell them like no you're really in it and we're fucked you know as extinction rebellion said with their banner then people get pissed off uh, you break a societal code somehow or an agreement that we're fine and that it's okay and we don't have to be afraid um it so- that also is- sounds a part of trauma right no everything's fine yeah <laughs> yeah but it but it also shows something um yeah about what's the role of activists that maybe we don't talk about so much because uh, truth is like immediately suspect and and um um too much it's it's arrogant or uh, over the top but then yeah bringing something into society which is so fundamental and so strong causes all these responses and actually of course a healthy society would be able to um on the one hand judge like is this sensible what they're saying what does this what journalists now of course for example respond a lot is like ah, you have activists that talk about climate change you have activists that talk about farmers or farming and but they're basically or you yeah, have everybody has that, a voice that talk about evil reptilians yeah ruling the world yeah and everybody has a voice you know so who are we to judge or to check <laughs> what's happening uh, we have to uh, give everybody uh, a platform as part of the societal uh, body but that really discounts this idea of parisia and this idea of like what are people doing how are they from where is information being brought and and what is the cost for them to bring it and in that sense i was having a conversation yesterday with people also from media that i said like i do not understand why activists especially climate activists are not a normal part of societal debates why don't they have columns in newspapers why aren't they at every uh, talk show table because you know, like by now we know that the truth that they're telling is a scientific truth, is real, and that they are always non-violent. So they they're really um, a dependable group in that sense. Um, that's really clear what their societal role should be, but still they're really pushed out of the narrative always and not seen as a legitimate actor, but like really as a fringe actor. So I wonder about that. I I wonder about. The, all the gatekeepers and all the people uh, managing uh, managing the talk yeah. shows and, and and newspapers like is that again that emotional resistance that we started talking about well that, we had, uh, yeah we had someone literally gluing himself to a talk show table exactly. uh, recently in the Netherlands yeah and you did see right that something happens there then to also for a moment at least to the talk show hosts that, that something opens uh in their perspective they invite some climate scientists they listen they're concerned and why was uh, he invited he was invited to speak about 
not about climate, but about the form of throwing soup at uh, paintings. Yeah. Uh, not about uh, why they were doing it, but about whether this this is the right form to do whatever they want to do. So exactly. Then they invited him to a talk show and include himself to the table. And then the next day, uh, or I don't know, the day afterward, they invited well Hannah <laughs> and uh, uh, a climate scientist to his talk show yep. table. I don't think so, they're. I think they stopped doing it now. Yeah, probably. Uh, we'll see in the coming weeks. Um, I mean, yesterday the COP ended, so there was still uh, some some news that they had to bring. Still sexy in the media, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think there's two two ways media work. Either they feel like, yeah, we we just can't skip this. It's just too obviously important. Or, you know, is it sexy? Um, or a mix of the two. And yesterday, the end of the COP, they had, a, I think, a good item on the Dutch uh, news that explained it well. And that also asked the climate minister, but if this is really what you're saying, aren't we going to miss the 1.5 degrees? And the the interviewer was a bit distraught about this. You felt there was a bit of emotion in the question or underneath the question. And of course, the minister for, for climate and uh, economy said, like, he talked over it. He explained what we are doing and that there are certain things happening, etc. And then the person repeated, but the interviewer, the journalist repeated, but uh, above one and a half degrees, isn't that really cat catastrophic uh, consequences for society? Uh, and then the minister again talked over it but that question was really i think in that sense strong but that's of course a question that should be asked every day but you feel with the interviewer in that situation the heaviness of of what happens because you get into this existential state like wait a minute what's happening here really yeah uh, and that's and even that's... catastrophic is i mean people are numb to it right now yeah but it's but it's, there's this moment of Parisia almost. Yeah. What so what will happen? Okay. So uh, you are saying that 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 the consent that you that we will get to one and a half degrees. And what will happen when? Okay. When we get to one and a half degrees, what will the world look like? And that so that's that's the question, right? That's what the interviewer tries to do. What will happen? Well, the interviewer, the interviewer tried tried to ask the the minister for climate in the Netherlands, like, but what you are telling me now basically is we're not going to make the one point five degrees. And if you are telling me this, then we know that that has really catastrophic consequences. Trying to just grasp the reality of the facts on TV with the minister, the minister being a politician, not responding in a Parisiastic way, not being honest, even though that would risk. A lot of people getting scared, getting emotional responses, denying it, not voting for him again or his party or whatever kind of dynamics you want to imagine. But you 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 can see sometimes in the media when this honesty comes in that there's a certain uh, risk that you feel happening because you go over a taboo edge of what we accept together to be real. Um, and then they go back into, they fall back into the safe space of... Um, Maybe it's a television show after all, or let's just forget about this. So when you say, like, will they be invited back, uh, us activists, to the talk show table? So when the, the man stuck himself to the table, one of mm. the first things the, the talk show host said is, do you think you will get invited back to talk shows like this? And it's and it's funny, right? Because the, the reverse the reverse psychology thing happens every time. Like, oh, no, no. 
activists think, oh, no, we'll never get invited again. And other people think, haha, they'll never get invited again. And then they get invited again the next day. The, the guy who glued himself to the table was invited in Belgium to a talk show the next day and then to a Dutch talk show the day after. And then before he was there uh, in the talk show, um, another activist was in another national talk show. Before those two people, only one one activist had been in a talk show in the past four years at all. So it had been so silent. So what I think the question is to that, that's in the first place, the journalist, but in the second place, let's say society as large, is like, do people manage to hold open that existential space, which is really scary and threatening, which your house is not closed, it's not safe, you know, like we're, we're, we're uh, in a precarious state, we don't know how the future will turn out, we don't know that our kids will be more wealthy, more healthy, better off than we are. Um, to 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 open up that space is a really emotional uh, thing, also for journalists, also for politicians, but it's a societal challenge. So yeah, you know this idea of of parisia, of speaking truth even if it risks your position in society, is really about opening that that space. Um, just to talk about the facts, but then also to process the facts. And that, that's more important, the emotional processing of the facts. Well, thank you very much for speaking with me. I think that's a nice place to end. Yeah, well, a pleasure. Let's speak another time again, if you're willing. <laughs> but we have yeah. to end somewhere. Thank you for listening. Go to livefromplatoscave.com for other episodes.